Welcome back, folks, to episode 45 of the Running Man Self-Regulation Skills and Self-Improvement Project podcast with me, your host, Dr. Armando Dominguez, Ph.D. in health psychology, licensed professional counselor and an adjunct professor at a local community college. And what we're going to be discussing today is something that has been coming up um rather infrequently, but uh, still pops up in my social media feeds and things that um, I would say need a little more understanding. But the term aphantasia, aphantasia is a term that is used for somebody that is incapable of visualizing. And I've heard a lot of stuff out there that's truly just pap, and it's not accurate. And I want to correct a couple of ideas about that because uh, aphantasic folks, generally speaking, are said to not be able to visualize or creatively visualize like everyone else in the population. And notice I said everyone that is an absolute in quotes, but um, this does not necessarily fall within the realm of the current um verbiage that's being tossed about having to do with neurotypical and neurodivergence that tend to fall within the realm of uh, those people that are being discussed that have like Asperger's, autism, and also possibly ADHD and its variants. Now, there are a number of folks that would be considered in quotes neurotypical and also neurodivergent that have perfect capacity in the sense of being able to visualize or be able to see visual images in their minds. And uh, there are those that report that they're unable to. And uh, this is what we're going to discuss. Aphantasic folk. Aphantasia, what does that mean? And also, can I visualize whenever I say that I can't? Now, here's where the discussion will begin. As far as uh, being able to visualize, whenever we visualize, we have to understand that when we're communicating something that is that internal, that private, so to speak, nobody can see what it is that we're visually seeing in our minds. So when we're talking about what I see in my mind, the visualization, the image, uh, the memory, a recall, this sort of thing, a, a constructed memory, something that I'm making up in my mind, so to speak, we use words and verbiage to describe and speak whatever it is that it is that we're entertaining in our mind's eye, so to speak. So whenever we are talking about what I imagine, we're going to be using these terms relatively interchangeably because they are pretty much the same thing as far as output or end result, but rather they are differences in term, the words that we use to describe them and function to a degree in some, but generally we're looking at something that accesses our visual uh, memory, so to speak. So whenever we say the words, I remember, I'm recalling, or even the word memory, to remember, visual, visualization, imaginal, which is a scientific term, imagination, daydream, and dreaming, and also picturing things with our mind or seeing things in my mind's eye. Whenever we think about seeing, we are seeing with our eyes, but also we're seeing with our mind in that we're engaging versus just looking, which is strictly just perception. So these are some terms that are largely interchangeable when we speak in our language. So that helps us define what we mean by if I'm remembering or visualizing intentionally, even creatively visualizing for health or improved performance. 
Now, the next part we're going to talk about has to do with brain structure. Now, we do know that the occipital area in our brain region near our brainstem in the back of our head that we tend to bump whenever we back into something or we fall down and we bump the back of our head hard enough, we may be able to, uh, we may even lose uh, sight, visual capacity as a result of that impact. Then that area right behind wherever our brainstem is, wherever we reach up and touch the rounded back of our head, that's the occipital region. In that region, more or less, is wherever the visual uh, gets its information from the eyes by way of the optic nerve through the optic tectum, where it crosses over left to right and right to left in a little X pattern and goes straight back to this region to get not only uh, interpreted, but also sent to reasons of memory that we'll later be able to access with. So structurally, most of our visual stuff gets Initially, at the perceptual level, at the initium of perception, when we take the light in, it's being worked with in the occipital region of our brain. After that, it splits off to other regions of our brain, yes. And uh, sometimes, whenever we remember something associated with something that I've seen and something that I've heard together, they become linked in a sense. A synaptic link is created and different regions of the brain. So when we do visual imaging and we're remembering something, but we cue it with sound, we may be able to put up, pull up a visual memory more effectively. So we kind of know this by way of the fMRI technology that we have now. So we do know that the visual capacity has to do with our ability to see unless one is congenitally blind or born blind, more correctly. Um, we will all have visual image and memory. Now, this is wherever we get into the conundrum of what we will call aphantasia. When somebody says that I can't visualize, and uh, some people complain that when someone tells me to imagine or visualize and I close my eyes, I tend to use or hear myself saying the words over and over. This is almost like a hypnotic suggestion, almost telling myself, almost reminding myself of what to do. And that would be to, let's see, a white elephant. And tell someone, don't see a white elephant once again. Uh, you're going to be imagining that in many cases because by default, we don't process the negatives, but we certainly get the objective picture because we do know that elephants exist. Even if maybe a white elephant doesn't exist, we know that we can make one in our mind and it kind of happens. And now what happens to the aphantasic folks? Well, the reports and by way of survey and scientific study, we understand that people uh say that they cannot perceive within their mind's eye what we would call a mental picture. Now, what we have to look at is the fact that if you talk to any meditator or even somebody that's not particularly artistic in the sense of graphic arts, drawing, painting, this sort of thing, that often our average visualization isn't particularly bright. It isn't particularly detailed, nor is it distinct 3D high def like maybe someone like uh, Nikola Tesla would have had. That would be an extreme uh, person out on the, the farthest ends of the spectrum, so to speak, someone that would be an outlier that would blow the curve for everybody if we were testing. Uh, so we have those people that are greatly gifted in that sense. That's their endowment. And it is a neurological difference. And we do have individual differences. And the furthest end of the spectrum is somebody that would be, for instance, unable to visualize because maybe they have been congenitally blind. But where do the aphantasic folks fall? It would still probably be within the bell curve or closer to the end of not seeing, but not so much because they can't perceive because they do have, for instance, uh, generally assuming they have a generally healthy set of eyes, 
they still take in things at the perceptual level and the brain still um, keeps those memories as visual information, just like anyone else that is typically sighted like they would be, but able to visualize. Now, everyone does not visualize at the same level. We're not all the Nikola Tesla's uh, 3D high def visualizers. Most of us visualize in rather dim uh, and semi what we'd call obfuscated edges, things aren't nearly as clear, we may be able to pull things up that would be what we would call a simulacrum or something close to what the image is. And sometimes it's very accurate, but it's rarely very bright. Neuro-linguistic programming actually works with these things so we can actually enhance how we remember those former perceptions of ours so we can brighten an image, we can make it larger, this sort of thing. So we're using a very dynamic, active uh, imagination whenever we're pulling recall. This is for uh, higher performance and changing beliefs and this sort of stuff. And it does work very well, and I'm very familiar with it, and I've used it myself. But I'm not aphantasic, so I can visualize, but it's not perfect for me. But sometimes it requires that I be able to use my words to follow along a script to be able to get the picture of it and the sense of it, but it's rarely ever like I'm fully immersed. I do see myself in it, so to speak, if I'm doing a visualization where it's active, I may be walking through something, doing something, but rarely do I see it like I'm in it in my 3D uh, world, in my physical body, so to speak, experiencing my my life in that sense. It, it's never that vivid. And it isn't anything like those super vivid dreams either, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's ineffective because of that. Uh, most of whatever goes on at that level of mind is conscious and is intentional, but it gets worked out by our subconscious mind at the lower level of the brain that is visual and it gets the picture, so to speak. And I do say that in a sense that it is like a pun, but it's also pretty much the point of what I'm saying, because whenever it gets the picture, it gains the understanding. And one of my earliest uh, podcasts that I did, I spoke about the cephalic phase of eating. That means those things that we see out and about that look like food, that looks like favorite food, or maybe even a lemon that I've seen somebody eat, or maybe I'm seeing somebody eat it, or maybe I'm recalling some time way in the past, distant past, when I've seen somebody in my life sometime eating one of a thousand to 10,000 lemons I may have seen in a lifetime and biting it and I salivate as a result of that, there's a compelling quality to it. So even an aphantasic folk person, individual that says, I can't visualize, can have a recall and still salivate. So it gets worked out. It may not be perfect high def, but here uh, is where I'm going to give my personal and professional opinion about this, not only based on the literature, which it does agree with what I'm saying, but these are some assumptions I've come to of my own in teaching martial arts and usual visualization. Also working with people in the psychological field clinically and them discussing whenever things have been under great deals of stress and the compelling nature that has created some change that has been negative or maybe even positive for that matter, but the speed of which was way beyond or rather way in front of, I should say, their conscious mind to be able to decide whether something's good or bad. And it was a reactive response. So to make the point is the cephalic phase of eating means that if I see or recall something that I've seen that resembled food, favorite food or something sour, why does my body respond with the dropping of pituitary hormone and therefore I salivate because of that? Because it's compelling. It's compelling at some level. 
And it just means that it's believable. It's not a belief system, but it is something that would be environmentally perceptual in the sense that I would take in information that way if I was really seeing it versus just recalling it. But in the survival sense, if I were to miss a meal, and meals don't come easily when we're cave people a long time ago, then would it not be wise to be in preparation and expectation of food and be able to consume that quickly before someone else fought me for it? Especially if it's a morsel that is a mouthful and I see it and I can take advantage of it. Of course, it helps to be able to get the body's gustation capacity up and running right away. But this actually plays in very uh, neatly into the aphantasia aspect of what we're talking about. Because if you speak to anyone, talk to anyone that has trouble visualizing, why is it that whenever they remember a favorite food, they still salivate? They're not remembering the wording for it because that's perceptual. And that's also at the level of brain that's a wordless mind, wordless level of brain and wordless level of mind. That does not have to do with I need to be able to label this lemon. What if there was no word for lemon, but I knew it was food, but yet I still salivated? It's been worked out. And it is not a rational, reasonable thing. It is a survival orientation thing. And to make sense of why maybe somebody cannot visualize, science kind of backs up what my opinion is. I'll give my opinion on this first, not because my opinion is more important, but rather this is just uh, the conclusions that I've come to in experience uh, of working clinically and also in the martial sense and in the sense that if these <laughs> tools don't work, you, know, you get hurt or you could die. So um, from that perspective, bottom line, uh, I've been able to observe that, that whenever we have a capacity to visualize, we have a capacity to change things based on a belief that's very functional and that it's not a verbal thing. It has to do with whether or not it's believable or compelling. And it seems to me, and has seemed to me in my practice, that whenever somebody is complaining of not visualizing or able to visualize, often they're very heady in their perspective. That means their their executive function, the higher levels of brain, the, where the blood flow is, where our IQ and our, our most uh, measurable crystallized intelligence tends to occur, is on. And the science tends to support that whenever someone is able to visualize more effectively that the lower levels of brain back in the occipital region that we talked about in the back of your head tend to light up more than somebody that is aphantasic. Theirs light up, but very faintly, but their bridges to the other perceptions still as a perceptual preverbal level uh, tend to light up as well. But on top of that, their executive function jumps into the work. But what we do know at the survival level is that executive function is slow. That is not reactive. It's responsive. Making sense of stuff at the narrative level is not a good survival skill. Whenever you're trying to figure out, I need to get out of the way versus figure it out whether or not that's my friend wearing a wolf skin or is it a wolf. So executive function is really good stuff to have whenever we're building and reasoning and strategizing when things are safe. But those that were unable to visualize as well, uh, their executive function came on and it was almost uh, looked at as a compensatory action, something to make up the difference versus somebody that could be uh, able to visualize this sort of thing. So visualization often gives us um, a jump in time in the sense that we can strategize and plan and therefore expect. So it's closely tied to that uh, visual aspect that we talked about called the cephalic phase of eating, where I can expect to see food, so therefore I can strategize this way. And it's kind of tied to a very simplistic 
time binding of sorts. But with the aphantasic folks, one thing that I see is not necessarily as a negative or a less than uh, everyone else that can visualize, but rather I think it's a permutation that may or may not have come from occluded or occulted light conditions. Because at that point, executive function does make sense because you're feeling around more and there are other perceptual areas come online for such as for auditory and tactile, but their visual is a little behind that is kind of recognizing a blindness of source. Not that they can't see with their eyes. They can when light is on, but when the eyes are closed and the lights are off, so to speak, that means my visualization does not work. Therefore, my executive function has to work better. My auditory and my tactile and my gustation and olfactory may be sharper. And that's kind of what the science is showing, that the other perceptual areas, including the higher executive function, are pulled on. So, and this is my error, if there is an error, but my understanding of the science, and I think it looks like it may have been a certain percentage of the population may have just been better in darker occluded conditions. And if we think about further up north when the, the nights are really long, I'm not sure who specifically genetically would be the ones that would have the aphantasic response, but um, there are those that would be in places where sunlight is a lot longer in the sense that they have longer days, shorter nights. This would be more like the equatorial areas. There may be a difference there. I'm not sure. I don't believe that study's been done, but I'm definitely thinking about that as a possible potential uh, research study because it is such a deep, fascinating subject, but definitely has something to do with not only our psychology, but our perceptual psychology and how we think and believe as a result of what we are able to visualize uh, in our mind and also how it possibly could have affected us and how we've evolved as a species of hunters, hunter-gatherers for that matter. And being able to visualize and remember is definitely a, a tool that lends itself to being able to identify food, fruit, and landscape where we know where the food is, especially if light's outside and I can navigate that way. So this is really an interesting subject once again. So I'm going to put some pointers out there since this is about self-regulation. Well, how does knowing this help me? Well, one of the things is that you can still visualize. You can still do the creative visualization, maybe even follow along with the words. And even though you may not be able to see the visual, that's okay. It get, gets worked out as long as you understand the words if you're following the creative visualization. But if you're doing it yourself, don't expect to be seeing super bright images unless you're just one of those gifted and super talented artistic types. And uh, they can see things that way. It doesn't mean you're not imaginative or creative. It doesn't mean that somehow you're less than. But I do sincerely think that there is something of a, a bit of leverage you may have in a occluded or occulted light conditions as a result of that aphantasia quality. And once again, this is my thoughts and it may not even pan out that way, but it's definitely a direction worth researching at some point. And I'm sincerely thinking about that and we'll see how that goes in the future. But what I want to do is tell you that if um, visualization is something that you like to do, I want to turn you on to a book called uh, Path Notes of an American Ninja Master, and that was written by uh, the late Dr. Glenn J. Morris, who was also a social psychologist. But he has an exercise in there, and you may be able to get it on Google, 
books, Google Reads, and I know one of his other books, uh, Shadow Strategies, is available online. But um, if you were to get this, there's an exercise called Damo's Cave. Damo was a patriarch that supposedly brought Buddhism from India to China and then instilled what they call Chin or in Japanese Zen Buddhism and meditation to the benighted monks of old in the Shaolin Temple. So some pretty awesome history there. But the exercise itself is rather fascinating. It is creative, and it allows one to work on a number of things in one's mind as a visualization exercise that is really worth pursuing just for the sake of being able to improve one's capacity under stress and also what one does creatively when one thinks to be able to just make things or even invent things for that matter. And it's a lot of fun besides. So certainly look that up. Follow, like, and share. I'd love to hear from you and see how things are going on your side of the world. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, give me some feedback. The email is runningmangetskills at gmail. Getskillsproject at gmail.com. And this is the evening. I think I'm going to go get some dinner. I'm running a little late. But certainly has been good speaking with you and talking about something rather fascinating. That's a Fantasia. Take care. Walk well.